Between the 1840s and the 1860s, America, which up until 1803 consisted of only 17 states and a whole bunch of unpurposed land, well, by the white man's standards, the Native Americans were purposing it just fine. But with the purchase of 827,000 square miles, give or take, the people suddenly felt the urge to spread out and find a little slice of paradise of their own. It was manifest destiny after all, and it didn't hurt that the government was handing out parcels of land to encourage the expansion. Brave and hardy souls attempting to take all of their worldly possessions across 2,000 miles, according to a roughly scribbled out route, in wagons pulled by oxen or mules or horses, set out believing the propaganda of paradise at the end of the trail, which may have been slightly exaggerated, and willing to face a few uncomfortable months of journey to receive it, which might have been slightly underplayed. This, my friends, is how the Oregon Trail that began in Missouri and ended in Oregon became the longest graveyard in America. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. More than 400,000 people believed that Oregon was meant to be their paradise. More than 400,000 people sold all of their belongings and purchased the prerequisites to make the 5-7 to seven month journey across 2,000 miles. Only about 80,000 would make it. Some turned back. Some decided to go another route. The Oregon Trail was the starting point for other trails such as the Santa Fe, the Mormon Trail, or even the California Gold Miners Trail. But the reality is, on the Golden Trail alone, one of every ten people would die along the way. And to make matters worse, hold on to your heartstrings, one of every five children did not make it to Oregon. That makes a grave about every fifty feet for two thousand miles. As Hiram Crittenden remembered, the trail was strewn with abandoned property, the skeletons of horses and oxen, and with freshly made mounds and headborns that told a pitiful tale, end quote. Some of the causes might surprise you, and some may seem obvious, knowing, of course, what we know now. But today we are looking back at the many, 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 many ways one could lose their life along the Oregon Trail. In today's time, if we get a scratch or a bug bite, it's considered basic, even minor, nothing a little Neil Sporin can't handle. But back before there were Walgreens on every corner, those instances we brush off became life or death situations for the immigrants. Small accidents, scrapes, or open wounds were susceptible to infection, and once infection set in, it was difficult to recover from. They didn't have the medicines, the antibodies, or even the proper diet to help them combat these interferences with their body's daily function. And if you really want to put things into perspective, we didn't really figure out that cleanliness was the best weapon against infection 
until post-Civil War, which was more than 20 years into the future. They just didn't have the resources to clean the wound, much less bind it and treat it before the infection turned septic. It started with redness, then, if untreated, and of course we know that more dirt was added, the infection would spread throughout the body through the bloodstream, and once that happened, fever would set in. Sometimes the body had the resilience to heal itself, but unfortunately, what began as a small scratch could be a death sentence, and they wouldn't even realize why. Simple accidents like twisting your ankle, misuse of tools, accidentally stepping on a low-growing cactus, or even the cactus quills, or stepping on a snake for that matter, could lead to an untimely death, and it happened so fast. The wagons were led by a pair of oxen, or sometimes a team of mules, and rarely horses. Captain Burnett swore by oxen, quote, The ox is the most notable animal, patient, thrifty, durable, and gentle, he said. Slow and steady, they were built for just such a job, provided they weren't over-encumbered. The wagons were heavy. They held thousands of pounds of supplies, such as food, tools, weapons, and sometimes the kitchen sink. Okay, that may have been unlikely, but there were a number of anvils, harpsichords, roller desks, and a dining set or two. The wagons were heavy. Most lost their lives when the wagons got away from the livestock or rolled over those who happened to be in the wrong place. Lots of little ones unfortunately perished this way. One false step, one bump, one slip, and their bodies would be crushed by the wheels supporting all that weight. It happened in a blink of an eye. Sometimes they didn't even know it happened right away, and the parents had to be informed by the wagon behind them. Any number of things could go wrong when dealing with livestock. While most of the time they could be docile and manageable, there were times when they would get spooked and were capable of causing all kinds of damage. The emigrants were completely dependent on their beasts of burden. If anything were to happen to them, that led to another cause of death. Depending on how the beasts died, they could still serve as food for a little while, but then you find yourself stuck. You can't go anywhere unless you're willing to carry all of your belongings. And while you may think you might be fine carrying all your belongings, how long? You'd have no protection from the elements, yet another way to die. There are documentary reports on being struck by lightning, hailstorms, tornadoes, and even flash floods. Oh, but back to trying to survive without your oxen. So the short story is starvation. You'd have no idea of when the next group would be coming through. Or you may be off the beaten path. Or they may not be able to help you or want to help you. Starvation. People were trampled by stampedes of cattle or horses, and we already know that you can die by a scratch. You can only imagine what a broken bone could bring. Oh, wait, you don't have to imagine. I have just such a story from Edwin Bryant. Hang on for just a quick sec. We've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. 
I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. The Oregon Trail was well documented thanks to many journals, letters, and diaries that were kept along the way. This story comes from a journal entry which became a book from Edwin Bryant. He was an editor for a paper, and because he was a learned man, people assumed he was a doctor. Apparently, he had no need to correct them. Doctors were few and far between, and most charged high fees to procure their services. Plus, it was a prestigious calling, unless they discovered your incompetence, and then you referred to as a quack, which may or may not come with tarring and feathering depending on the company you keep. As far as this sad story, I'll let Mr. Bryant tell you. He says, quote, a boy of eight or nine years of age had had his leg crushed by falling from the tongue of a wagon and being run over by its wheels. When I reached the tent of the unfortunate family to which the boy belonged, I found him stretched out upon a bench made of plank ready for the operation which they expected I would perform. I soon learned that the accident occasioning the fracture had occurred nine days previously that a person professing to be a doctor had wrapped some linen loosely about the leg and made a sort of trough or plank box in which it had been confined. In this condition, the child remained without any dressing of his wounded limb until last night when he called to his mother that he could feel worms crawling in his leg. An examination of the wound for the first time was made and it was discovered that gangrene had taken place and the limb of the child was swarming with maggots. I made an examination. The limb had been badly fractured and had never been bandaged, and from neglect gangrene had supervened, the child's leg from his foot to his knee was in a state of putrefaction. The surgical instruments to be used were a common butcher knife, a carpenter's handsaw, and a shoemaker's awl to take up the arteries. The man commenced sawing, but before he had completed the amputation of the bone, he concluded that the operation should be performed above the knee. During these demonstrations, the boy never uttered a groan or a complaint, but I saw that he was dying. 
The operator, without noticing this, proceeded to sever the leg above the knee. A cord was drawn around the limb, so tight that it cut through the skin into the flesh. The knife and saw were then applied and the limb amputated. A few drops of blood only oozed from the stump. The child was dead. His miseries were over. The scene of weeping and distress which succeeded this tragedy cannot be described. End quote. Brent stayed for the funeral of the child, but was quickly called away to assist in the birth of a baby. And then another joyful event before the day would come to a close. To give you an idea of the value of life and the awesome power that life goes on, he later wrote, quote, I could not reflect upon the singular concurrence of the events of the day. A death and funeral, a wedding and a birth had occurred in this wilderness within a diameter of two miles and within two hours' time. And tomorrow, the places where these events had taken place will be deserted and unmarked except by the grave of the unfortunate boy deceased. End quote. Most of the travelers from Missouri to Oregon were farmers. They were eager to start a new life on their new land and their new seeds or infant trees were their most valuable possessions that they brought with them. They were not gunfighters. They were not hunters. They were planters and their skill lay in cultivating and bringing life to the land. Many had never even held a gun. There were so many stories swirled around by the newspapers and dime store novels about Indian attacks that the immigrants felt the need to load up on firearms, bullets, and gunpowder. And as is the case, since you have the means to protect yourself, you almost feel that you have to, which could lead to many unnecessary discharges from the weapons. And if it was your turn to stand watch, and the entire camp was under your protection, and it was pitch black, and you were tired and more than a little afraid, many accidental deaths occurred when our inexperienced farmers would shoot at would-be Indians or feel fear from noises in the dark, which may have just been an animal, or a bug, or worse, a friend and fellow traveler. These men were not used to having to hunt for their food, so at times while crazily pursuing an antelope or buffalo or even a rabbit, many accidents happened. There are episodes of accidental misfires taking the life of one of the children, a sibling. Then there are stories when a child gets a hold of a weapon. At this point, you can assume the worst, and you'd be right. The result of these misfires was never good. Most perished. The lack of doctors were not necessarily the reason, because if the doctors were there, they could only bandage the wound and encourage heavy drinking to dull the pain. Which... We now know today that alcohol thins the blood and actually causes the victim to bleed more and faster. Sure, he may not feel it, and sure, it may make his suffering go by quicker, but, well, wait a sec, <laughs> maybe the doctors did help. If there was a doctor nearby that was fetched, chances are if he was feeling froggy, he would attempt to remove the bullet by the same entrance the bullet penetrated the skin. He would stick his finger in the opening to see if he could feel the lead ball. If he could, he could choose to attempt to remove it with his fingers, since he was there anyway, or attempt to remove it with forceps. 
This tool looked like a tiny pair of scissors with a long blades that were actually a clamp at the bottom. Needless to say, he might have saved about 1% of those being shot. The first documented death from accidental misfire happened in Blue Mound, Kansas in 1841. And the poor man's name was John Shotwell. No, seriously, that was his name. John Bidwell wrote, quote, A mournful accident. A young man by the name of John Shotwell, while in the act of taking a gun out of the wagon, drew it with the muzzle towards him in such a manner that it went off and shot him near the heart. He lived about an hour and died in full possession of his senses. End quote. In the early years of the mass emigration, the rivers still had to be forded. This meant that the families had to cross them on foot. They could ride the horses across and individually they might be able to swim across, but to get the wagons across was another story. Most of the drownings were men and children. The currents could cause you to lose your footing and pull you under. Flooding made the waterways unpredictable. Even the Platte River, which was followed a good part of the way, was said to be relatively shallow, but the undercurrents were strong and claimed many lives. The larger Conestoga wagons had taller wheels but were heavy and bulky, but could usually be prodded through. The schooners were lower to the ground with a wider base. They were designed so that the wheels could be removed and the bottom could be sealed so that they could be easily maneuvered across rivers. Nothing could go wrong with that plan, right? Supplies were lost, lives were lost, livestock was lost, and let's not forget that everything happened at the river banks. Everything. Just save that thought for later. Side note. Drownings happen so often with children. This is where the habit came from of parents putting the name into their clothes. So many children were swept away from the rushing waters and died from drowning and sometimes were unable to be identified later or just an article of clothing would be found that mothers began to sew the child's name onto their personal effects. So if the body was found further down the river, they might not be able to identify the child, but the clothing was usually found. At the very least, it gave the mother closure. Bridges and ferries were eventually added to the trail, but many still chose to cross the rivers on their own. This is probably why the second highest death is men. I have a feeling that it comes from the same DNA strand that refuses to ask for directions, but that just could be me. One record just mentions this incident in 1853, quote, One inebriated immigrant misjudged rain-swollen Buffalo Creek, drove his wagon in, and was never seen again, end quote. I rest my case. And it's that time of the episode where I warn you that it's only going to go downhill from here. While listening to this next segment, you may suffer from phantom rashes, unexplained desire to scratch perfectly healthy skin, or it may even affect your gag reflex. Depends on how you feel about pus. I'll pause, so that way you can don your hazmat suit, grab your hand sanitizer, shower, or, at the very least, set aside your snacks. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. 
Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. John Clark writes, quote, We pitched our tents but soon found we were in a distressed crowd. Many Oregon families. One woman and two men lay dead on the grass and some more ready to die of cholera, measles, and smallpox. A few men were digging graves, others tending the sick, women and children crying, some hunting medicine, and none to be found scarcely. Those that had were loath to spare. With heartfelt sorrow, we looked around for some time until I felt unwell myself, ordered the teams, got up, and moved forward one mile so as to be out of hearing of crying and suffering, end quote. Despite miles and miles of open space in prairie lands, those who were traveling on the Oregon Trail stayed in pretty close proximity. During the day, the wagons would spread out both wide and create distance one from another because the dust was fine as powder and everywhere, including clothes, food, skin, hair, nose, and mouth, so some space was nice. However, the whole reason people traveled in parties was for safety and community. This made it easy for disease to spread rapidly from person to person, wagon to wagon, and travel party to travel party. Over the 20 plus years that the Oregon Trail had a steady pace of travelers, almost every single illness and disease, just short of leprosy, had been brought along from sea to shining sea. The journals and letters are filled with reports of death caused by dysentery, smallpox, measles, mumps, malaria, Whooping cough, influenza, typhoid, mountain fever, and scurvy were among the biggest perpetrators. But the deadliest disease that claimed over a quarter of the deaths belongs to, no, not dysentery, but more contagious and deadly cousin, cholera. Diphtheria, for example, was a fairly common disease. It was spread from person to person by close contact, a sneeze, or a cough, It affected the respiratory system by causing thick gray membranes to cover the throat and created a nasal discharge. Wait, let me try again, because that just sounds kind of like a cold. The thick gray goo I mentioned is fibrous, causing suffocation. It clogs the nose and throat, and if you can still breathe, it may cause excessive drooling. The glands will swell, and you will have a deep cough followed by fever. You might also even get skin lesions, bright red blotchy spots that will cause your jaw and throat to swell. And then this sneaky disease will present all of the symptoms and if you live through it, it seems to go away and yet it is still present. It never goes away. The person just becomes a carrier sharing it with those as they go. Another disease similar to this was tuberculosis, also affecting the respiratory. It was spread by coughing and sneezing, and those infected had a high chance of death. Tuberculosis was guilty of killing one in seven people, because it was mostly left untreated. Even with the treatments of the day, the patient could last maybe about three years. How about measles, mumps, and smallpox? All alive and well on the Oregon Trail. Are you ready for the topical diseases? This trifecta spread like crazy, and it was a killer, especially in the winter, when it doubled up with bronchitis or pneumonia. Swollen glands, rashes spread over the skin, 
Smallpox would also add raised bumps filled with a milky fluid that could spread across the entire body and have all three stages happening at once, the rash stage, the gooey bump stage, and the crusty, scabby lesions stage. Because of the lack of treatment, most young patients died. But if by chance they survived, they may have succumbed to eventual blindness. If the skin rash disease doesn't have you squirming in your own skin yet, how do you feel about bed bugs, fleas, lice, all happy to tag along and be quickly passed from one wagon to another? They were difficult to contain because of the lack of hygiene. Since the pilgrims didn't have the opportunity to bathe or change clothes often, it made it perfect conditions for infestation. Many died from these parasites simply because of eventual infection, but others died from disease that spread from these tiny insects. They often carried typhus, which would affect their hosts quickly and efficiently, causing death in a matter of weeks, but not before. A rash covers the entire body except for the palms of the hands and the bottoms of the feet. If the rash becomes so severe it bleeds, it will then lead to hypertension, delirium, which escalates to shock, and then death. Typhus is different from typhoid fever. I know you were thinking that, so I went ahead and found out for you. Many speculate that this is what they referred to as mountain fever. This presented with stomach ailments, cramping, constipation, and sometimes a mottled, thick, reddish, purplish skin rash as well. It took about 15% of the death rate. Once the Oregon Trail died down, so did this disease, unlike Europe, where it persisted for much longer. Typhoid fever, on the other hand, is a bacterial disease. It presents with rose-shaped rashes on the abdomen. It causes severe diarrhea and cause a fever, which can in turn cause delirium. In the other direction, it could also turn deadly quickly by perforating the bowels, which causes massive internal bleeding. The whole thing, from first symptom to final breath, would barely span three weeks. Sometimes in children, they would hardly show symptoms until it perforated the bowels and they would bleed out in minutes. One last insect to worry about, the mosquito. The mosquito brought us malaria, literally. Known as the Og, malaria had a reputation for sudden, widespread outbreaks striking down entire families. Most victims survived and lived with it as a chronic condition causing occasional bouts of weakness, chills, and fever. Camp fever is what they called scurvy. This was not contagious, but actually a deficiency of vitamin C. The body starts to break down from the inside out, and by the time you see the external symptoms consisting of bleeding and swollen gums, the body is already suffering from painful internal hemorrhaging. Summer complaint, which we actually touched on in episode 32 on food preservation, they believed it was caused by heat, and I guess when it was mixed with a bit of food poisoning which came from not knowing how to care for raw meat or raw unfiltered milk, it could have been. On the upside, summer complaint was not contagious and oftentimes not deadly, so there's that. River crossings were among the most dangerous spots on the Oregon Trail. 
Remember when I mentioned that everything happens at the river? Well, that's not even an exaggeration. And once you understand how these diseases, especially the big daddy of them all, cholera, spread, you can see how it managed to kill so many people. Even though the wagon trains did their best to stay close to water, there were long spans between times. In between opportunities to replenish their water supplies riverside, folks would gather water from ponds, marshes, or even standing water left from rain. And boiling water to kill germs hadn't become a thing yet. Believe it or not, of all the things I've talked about, this is what gets me the most. First of all, rotting carcasses were a thing. They just were. It was not uncommon to see bloated bodies from horses, cattle, or even dogs, sometimes, unfortunately, even humans. It wasn't something that necessarily shocked them anymore, and they really didn't go out of their way to avoid them. So when the wagon trains would pause Riverside, anywhere from 40 to 200 people would be camping at the same time. They would all be bathing, doing their laundry, including dirty diapers, washing dishes, using the bathroom, disposing of animal waste and garbage, all in the same place that they would think that they were getting clean, but where they would gather up their water supply. Ugh, I think I just threw up a little bit. Cholera is highly contagious. Not so much that you can catch it by touching someone who has it, but it is caused by contaminated water or food and grows especially fast if you can mix in a bit of fecal matter too. So that means when a person has cholera, they are vomiting from one end and uh, no control of the other end either. So any contact with their bodily fluids would pass on the disease. The victims would suffer from intense cramping and stomach pains while the disease started flooding the intestines with additional water and breaking down the stomach lining. It caused severe watery diarrhea and, as I mentioned, vomiting. The skin would turn blue and begin wrinkling. The victim would be so weak that they couldn't keep anything down. Cholera killed fast. A person could start the day off perfectly healthy have doubled over cramping by noon, and be dead by the time the sun set. If cholera didn't kill them in the first 24 hours after the onset of fever, it could make their way through the system in five to seven days if they could hang on that long. There was nothing anyone could do to ease their suffering, even though they tried using laudanum, which is a product of opium. All it could do was ease the pain. Martha Friel writes a letter in June of 1852 saying, quote, First of all, I would mention the sickness we have had, and I am sorry to say the deaths. First, Francis Friel died June 4, 1852. Maria Friel followed the 6th. Next came Polly Kastner, who died the 9th. And Lafayette Friel soon followed. He died the 10th. Elizabeth Friel, wife of Amos, who, side note, also happened to be Martha's mother, died the 11th, and her baby died the 17th. You see, we have lost seven persons in a few short days, all died of cholera, end quote. 
The epidemic thrived and peaked in 1849. Those who had come from Missouri were most likely infected or brought the bacterial-laden water with them. 1849 was also the time when many men were setting out for the gold rush in California. I doubt they were too worried about hygiene. From St. Louis, Missouri, all the way out to Fort Laramie in Wyoming, the cholera epidemic alone was blamed for wiping out more than 5,000 people in 1849. It wiped out huge chunks of wagon trains. The survivors were eager to move on for fear of contracting the disease. Not knowing how it was being spread, they only knew that if they kept in contact with the sick, they would soon perish too. This is the time along the trail that the graves would be shallow or not even dug at all. One record mentions driving past a row of 50 dead bodies all laying side by side. I've also heard some stories about people being buried before they were dead just because of the panic, but I haven't found any documented mentions of that. P.S. Cholera is still a thing and no vaccine exists. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Wash your hands, kids. Okay, fine. I know you've been waiting. And, for the record, I do this begrudgingly. You have dysentery. You may have been led to believe that this was the leading cause of death, but its cousin, as I mentioned, cholera, holds that record. But since you are so curious, the difference between the two is that while they are both spread by contaminated food or water, or filthy environment, and they both love hot and humid weather, the dysentery made its claim on the colon. It caused bloody excrement and caused dehydration and eventually the biggest culprit of dysentery, drinking warm milk or infected cow's milk. And this does not have an effective vaccine either. It has also been seen to be more resistant to antibodies. Don't drink warm, unpasteurized milk, please. And if you're still with me, no, it can't get much worse. But I find the medicines they used fascinating, and I thought you might too. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. So here's some bonus story on the medicines that they would have used on the trail. Quote, June 3rd, passed through St. Joseph on the Missouri River, laid in our flour, cheese, crackers, and medicine, for no one should travel this road without medicine, for they are almost sure to have summer complaint. Each family should have a box of physician pills, a quart of castor oil, a quart of the best rum, and a large vial of peppermint essence. End quote. Elizabeth Dixon Smith. The most commonly prescribed drug along the Oregon Trail was the toxic element mercury. Mercury was the active ingredient in many medicines, including calomel, the blue pill, which was a patent medicine sold by America's most prominent early physician, Dr. Benjamin Rush. These medicines were typically prescribed to caregivers to keep administering until the patient began to drool uncontrollably. This is 
In case you didn't know, the main symptom of mercury poisoning, which was mistaken for evidence that the medicine was working. Another popular addition to the medicine bag was opium. No one really knew of its addictive qualities, only that it helped the patient feel better. So it was mixed with Epicac and sold as Dover's powder, which was meant to relieve pain and induce sweating. However, Epicac is most commonly known to induce vomiting, if it's going to be inducing anything. Opium was also mixed with vinegar to be sold as black drops. For what reason, I do not know. Laudanum is probably the most popular use of opium. It was a cure-all, as in, if you took it in regular doses, you didn't really care what ailed you at all. It was made by steeping opium with alcohol and sweetening it up with sugar. Pharmacies also sold medicines made from plants like lobelia for headaches, juniper berries that were to help with infection and stomach ailments, willow tree bark could be used as a pain reliever, but I'm not sure next to opium it probably doesn't do much to help. They also believed that chili peppers were medicinal since they brought heat topically and internally. If you suffered from the common cold, you may be prescribed a few drops of camphor for a glass of water, as hot as you can stand it, and then drink it daily. But if there was also sore throat, well, then that meant you had to tie a piece of bacon sprinkled with black pepper around your neck. <laughs> Obviously. If someone got burned while out on the trail, the favorite option was to coat the burn with egg whites, providing a fake skin to keep the wound from drying out. But since no one really had eggs to spare for medicinal purposes, many people used rendered fat or beeswax thinned with turpentine. Rattlesnake bites were often treated just like you would see in the movies. Somebody would slice open the bite wound and suck the poison out. Then a poultice made from tobacco was added to the wound for additional drawing power, and it would be bandaged up. And if they caught it in time, it actually worked. I could do a whole episode of historical medicines, and I probably will. I have been collecting historical medical treatments for as long as I can remember, way before I even thought of a Bag of Bones podcast. So there are some good ones. You'll have to stay tuned. So if you've had enough dysentery and death for one week, that wraps up this week's Bag of Bones. You may hear a few more episodes about the Oregon Trail over the next few months as I am currently documenting the route personally. If you'd like to follow along, I tell of my adventures and share my photos in the History Revisited Facebook group. If you're not already a member, I'd love to have you. If not, I can be found at the Bag of Bones pages or at my website, elizabethbougeret.com. Until next time then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed.
To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.